your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. In the news this week, vaping, contaminants in uh, a drug called ranitidine, and this huge march that occurred in Montreal uh, about uh, climate change. We will discuss all those things, but... This is one of those rare events when the question that I had posed this morning on the trivia show was not answered. So we're going to give you a chance. And uh, here it is. What is the connection between spacewalking astronauts and agriculture? Spacewalking astronauts and agriculture. Uh, They weren't able to answer it this morning, so let's give it a try right here. Plus... One more question for you guys. Uh, Today is the beginning of the Jewish New Year known as Rosh Hashanah. So uh, let me take this opportunity to wish uh, all our Jewish listeners uh, Shana Tova, a happy new year. And also let me pose a question. Many of you tonight will be partaking of pomegranates. Why have pomegranates become a symbol of the Jewish New Year? So you can give us a call at... 514-790-0800. And of course, you can also text me at uh, uh, 500-800. If uh, you have any other questions in the world of science, we of course also welcome those. All right. Well, while I give you a little bit of time to think about the relationship or the link between spacewalking astronauts and agriculture. Uh, Let me address the issue of vaping. This has been in the news uh, quite a bit this uh, past week, and that is because of the uh, cases that have emerged of respiratory problems from people who have been smoking these electronic cigarettes. Well, they are mired in controversy, these e-cigs, And uh, there are questions about their ability to wean people off tobacco, as well as about their safety. In an electronic cigarette, there's a battery, and that powers an atomizer to produce an aerosol from a liquid that contains nicotine, propylene glycol, glycerin, and an array of flavorings selected from hundreds of possibilities that include banana cream, coffee, gummy bear, pink lemonade, green apple, and THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. One of the reasons that it is so difficult to know what is happening with these cases of respiratory problems is that there are so many different kinds of e-cigarettes and so many kinds of of solutions that are used in them. But originally, these cigarettes were introduced as a safer alternative to tobacco because they do not contain the combustion products that are found in tobacco smoke, the nitroso compounds, the polycyclic aromatics, which are known carcinogens. Uh, Of course, this doesn't mean that these cigarettes are are safe. An aerosol, which is what these e-cigarettes produce, is a fine suspension of uh, particulate matter, and it's mostly liquids or tiny bits of solid, and they're suspended in a gas. So the smoke that is inhaled from an e-cigarette is a complex mixture of chemicals that can be in the solid, liquid, or gaseous phase. What these do in the lungs, or what their effect is as secondhand smoke after they are exhaled, is essentially largely unknown. Chemical analysis has revealed all sorts of combustion products And indeed, there is even some polycyclic hydrocarbons 
although in much lower concentrations that you find in, in tobacco smoke. There's toluene, there's xylene, acetaldehyde, acrolyne, and formaldehyde. And that latter is a particular concern because it seems the amounts released may have been underestimated. Measurement of gaseous formaldehyde do not show a significant amount released, but there was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that found that breakdown of propylene glycol and glycerol, both found in e-cigarettes, yields compounds called hemiacetals, and these can release formaldehyde once they are inhaled. The researchers calculated that once this is taken into account, vaping contributes more formaldehyde than tobacco smoking. They point out, however, that the amount is proportional to the voltage that is generated by the battery in the cigarette. Well, given that devices known as box mods with voltages that can be adjusted to higher levels than found in e-cigarettes are becoming available, formaldehyde is becoming a, a bigger concern. Another worry is that youngsters may try these electronic cigarettes uh, because they've gotten the impression that they are safer than cigarettes. Indeed, the number of youths in grades 6 to 12 who had never smoked a cigarette but had used e-cigarettes increased threefold between 2011 and 2013, the last dates that are available. With the huge variety of e-cigarettes and devices now available, it is very difficult to know what people are actually inhaling. Attempts are underway to compare biomarkers in the urine, such as nitrosamines and various ketones and benzene and acrolyne and croconaldehyde and propylene oxide with those found in regular cigarette smokers. So far, the findings do show lower levels. And as far as flavorings go, they are, once, uh, they are the same ones that are used in the food industry, but not much is known about inhaling them. Diacetyl and acetylpropionyl are approved for food use, but are associated with respiratory disease if inhaled and are found in a majority of samples. Then there's cinnamaldehyde and 2-methoxycinnamaldehyde. Boy, cell phones can drive you crazy when you forget to turn them off. Uh, so anyway, uh, cinnamaldehyde and 2-methoxycinnamaldehyde, uh, they're found uh, in the cigarettes. And, uh, you know, nobody really knows what the effects are, but in cell culture, the effect on the cells does correlate with problems. Uh, you know, the more you inhale, the greater the problems, and they've shown this in the lab. So right now, there are no regulations governing the production of the vaping mixtures, and uh, it's almost impossible at this point to know exactly what we are exposed to because uh, there just isn't enough information. But we will certainly um, uh, find out, you know, some more about this. Okay, well, that's the, the vaping uh, story. And it's it certainly is an evolving one because, uh, you know, we're going to find out exactly uh, what is going on. But, you know, uh, let's hope that we don't make the same mistake as we did with cigarettes. When for a long time... Uh, they were thought to be rather innocuous, maybe a little bit of irritation in the stomach, in, in, in the throat, but that was all. Of course, uh, eventually we did find out that there was a, a much more significant problem associated with them, and it's not only lung cancer, it's heart disease and many other problems as well. There's the other issue that, you know, the contention that these e-cigarettes are going to be able to wean people off of smoking there is not a whole lot of scientific justification for that. 
In in fact, there's there are more studies that show that that uh, uh, people are more likely to to try these cigarettes because they think that they are safe, and there also are some scary statistics that people who try the e-cigarettes then go on to try regular cigarettes. Why? Because the e-cigarettes, of course, get them uh, uh, used to nicotine, and they want more and more. It's a it's a terrible business, uh, you know, when you get addicted to nicotine, and uh, obviously you want to get off of it. Uh, but um, e-cigarettes may not be the best way to do it. Uh, maybe the the patch, the nicotine patch, has has a better shot. Uh, but uh, you know. Uh, we have to be very aware of the fact that these e-cigarettes are presenting problems that had not been um, predicted. And there's another problem here, and that is the refills that are used in these electronic cigarettes, the nicotine refills, contain a significant amount of nicotine. In fact, they contain enough nicotine that if it is put into someone's food, it can be a very, very serious uh, problem. So I don't think that e-cigarettes are an answer to the problem of, of, of tobacco smoking, and we have to be very vigilant to make sure that our kids do not take up uh, this habit. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be back with your answers to my question about spacewalkers and agriculture. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. All right, let's see if anyone's been able to come up with uh, answer my question. The link between uh, spacewalking astronauts and uh, agriculture. Oh, let's see if uh, uh, Bob has an answer. Bob? Good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Hi. Okay, uh, I'd like to take a stab at both questions, but first the spacewalking question. Could it be the fact that we live in an oxygen-nitrogen environment that the level of nitrogen that has to be in the ground no no nothing like that okay next, next. the other one was about the pomegranate yeah is the fact that the pomegranate represents uh the symbolism that you have to open up the pomegranate to get to the seeds where you have the good deeds that come from within your heart yeah, yeah, you're sort of on on track with that one. Not bad. We'll see if we get a, another answer. Okay, uh, and actually, maybe Tom has one. Tom? Yes, good, good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Hi. So as far as the question with the pomegranate, yeah. I believe there's a Jewish tradition that there's 613 uh, seeds supposedly in the pomegranate corresponding to the 613 commandments. That's what I have read. Yeah, in the Torah. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that that is also what uh, I have heard. Uh, I'll be honest with you; I've never counted the number of seeds in a <laughs> pomegranate. I. I don't know if it's six hundred and thirteen. Uh, but but there, there's another question, of course: uh, How do you get the seeds out? Which is the part that you eat? And there are many techniques that people suggest about that, but I, I think the best is to submerge them in a, a bowl of cold water, and then you can pull on the seeds with your fingers, and they come out relatively easily. Okay. Of we'll course, it's, it's the seeds that you eat, of course, in, right. in uh, pomegranate. Okay. So uh, we, we still uh, didn't get an answer to my question. So you know what? I Maybe I will uh, put you out of your misery and uh, I will expound uh, upon this. So we're going to go back to March of 1965 when Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov 
climbed through the hatch of his uh, space capsule and became the first man to, quote, walk in space. Uh, he later said that it felt great, like a seagull with its wings outstretched, soaring high above the earth. But that exhilarating experience only lasted 10 minutes, so he did not have to worry about having to answer nature's call. But you know what? It was quite a different case when NASA astronauts Jim Voss and Susan Helms in 2001 spent almost nine hours outside working on the space station. And there would have been no way to climb back inside, remove their cumbersome spacesuit, and uh, engage the vacuum hose-equipped funnel that suctions urine away. Uh, so there had to be another solution, uh, and there was. There was no need for a frantic trip to the space toilet, thanks to the special undergarment the astronauts wore. It contained sodium polyacrylate, and that's a super-absorbent polymer that's capable of retaining at least 30 times its weight in urine. What does this have to do with agriculture? Well, way back in the 1960s, uh, a number of chemical companies, urged on by uh, some studies uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, wanted to find a way to conserve water in soils. Because, of course, this is a, a constant problem that uh, you know soils get dry and you have to wait for rain. And farmers, of course, uh, are always hopeful for, for rain. Well, it turned out that polyacrylic acid had an amazing property for absorbing water, swelling to many, many times its size. And uh, although this wasn't instituted in the 1960s, later on, uh, there was another use found for this uh, type of, of chemical. And this was mostly by the Japanese, who found that it could be used to make diapers and feminine hygiene products. And in Japan, sales boomed, and that then boosted American interest. And by the 1980s, superabsorbent polymers had become a giant industry with applications extending way beyond diapers and personal care products. And that's when farmers and the agricultural industry became interested in this because already these chemicals were produced in very large amounts to cater to the, the diaper and personal care product industry, so they were available. And they started to blend them into soils and also to use them as coatings on seeds. And it turned out that both of these really worked well. When they were coated onto seeds, the seeds sprouted more readily and the plants grew more quickly. And as far as putting these into the soil, well, turned out that the soil wasn't able to retain the water and the superabsorbent materials would slowly release the water should the soil become dry. Uh, these chemicals even became uh, available for home use for potted plants. And of course, they are still available. You don't always want to ask your neighbors to water your plants when you're away on vacation. So why not just take some superabsorbent polymer and blend it into the soil? Then you water it and the substance will release water as the plant uh, needs it. There are other uses as well. Uh, they're used, for example, uh, in construction. A superabsorbent powder can be blended with rubber to form a, a composite that can be used like mortar between cement blocks. Uh, 
On exposure to water, the composite swells and prevents water from penetrating. And this technology was especially useful in the construction of the tunnel. And that's the tunnel between England and France. Underground cables can also be prevented from water damage because they can be wrapped in a special tape that contains superabsorbent polymers to in intercept water before it can cause harm. And there's one other very interesting use for uh, these polymers. They are sold as a, a magic trick, very often called super slipper. You put a little bit of this powder into the bottom of a, a, an opaque glass, uh, pour in water, and uh, within a couple of seconds, you can invert the uh, vessel and show that the water has disappeared. Of course, it hasn't disappeared. What actually has happened is that it turned into a gel, and the gel sticks to the surface uh, of the cup. And it makes for a very, very neat uh, uh, magic trick. And you can reverse the, the effect by just adding a bit of salt. And when you mix the salt in with the uh, uh, solidified uh, polyacrylate, uh, the water will be released and you can restore the liquid. So you can pretend to just put a little bit of magic chemical into the cup, magic chemical being salt, and all of a sudden the water that has vanished now reappears. So now you know the story of superabsorbent polymers and uh, the relationship between agriculture and spacewalking astronauts. The astronauts essentially wear a diaper, although it doesn't look like a diaper, it's, it looks more like uh, underwear, but it has the superabsorbent stuff in it, and it is the same stuff that is used on farms in order to hold moisture into uh, in the soil. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show, and we will be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Big event this week, the launch of my new book. Uh, it's called The Right Chemistry. And uh, on Thursday, I'll be on the TV so show The Social out of Toronto talking about the book. And uh, it should be in the bookstores within uh, a week or so. I'm not exactly sure when it is. But anyway, it, it's called uh, Grain of Salt. And it is the science and pseudoscience of the stuff that we eat. I think it's an interesting book. Uh, I hope you think so as well. Anyway, uh, we had this march uh, f about uh, the climate change uh, issue in Montreal with, uh, oh, a very, very large number ranging anywhere from 300,000 to 500,000. So organizers say, you never know, know really how many, uh, but it was very interesting. And of course, it does call attention to the problem, which is very real. And uh, many of the news reports quoted uh, people in the march, as well as uh, young Greta, the Swedish girl who has received so much publicity, as saying, let's follow the science. Well, as you can imagine, I totally agree with that. Uh, we should be following the science. The science says that climate change is here, it's real, and that uh, humans have a role to play. We can debate exactly to what extent humans play a role, but humans uh, do play uh, a role. But if we're going to follow the science, what do we do? You know, it's one thing to march. It's another thing to actually do something about it. I would have liked to see uh, more emphasis placed on, on uh, nuclear power. Uh, 
as um, a potential, uh, I wouldn't say solution, but a, a big help for this problem. Uh, nuclear power, of course, does not produce any uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, does it have some risks? Everything in life has some risks. But if you look back historically, the number of people who were have been affected by the Three Mile Island, by, by Chernobyl, uh, and by Fukushima, where, uh, you know, accidents did occur, is a very small number in comparison to the number of people who have died in coal mining and uh, other, uh, you know, uh, uh, energy sources uh, in in uh, you know industries that are associated with searching for natural gas and in fracking, I mean these are not benign either. Uh, nuclear power uh, can be used properly. It's just a question of knowledge and the proper built-in safety factors. And it is true that there's always some radioactive residual material that has to be handled, but it can be handled. That, you know, as I've said so many times, there's no such thing as a risk-free life. Everything has some risk associated with it. It's just a question of the risk versus the benefit. Yes, we have solar power, we have wind power, but those are not going to be the uh, total solutions to eliminating uh, fossil fuels. And uh, nuclear right now is the, the only option that there is besides solar and uh, and wind power. There's also tidal power, which is interesting, uh, but uh, again, that is not going to totally solve uh, the problem. This uh, this past week, we also heard a rather frightening story about a recall of a very widely used drug called ramitidine, uh, which uh, very people are familiar with under its uh, trade name, which is Zantac, and it is used for gastro problems, for hyperacidity. Uh, it is used in uh, ulcers and and also in the case of anaphylactic reactions. It it is used as a component of the drugs that uh, that are introduced, in addition to epinephrine. That is, after an epipen is used, uh, often one of these H2 blockers, of which ranitidine is an example. Are, are used. And there has been a, a, a recall because a contaminant has been found, and that is uh, N-nitrosodimethylamine, NDMA. And uh, this is a substance that we've talked about before because it is uh, found in, in uh, processed meats like hot dogs, ham, cold cuts, etc., as a result of treatment with nitrates and nitrites. And those uh, are added to processed meats in order to prevent the formation of uh, uh, botulin, which is a toxin produced by the Clostridium botulinum bacterium. They also add flavor to, to the meat. But however, uh, there's a downside, and that is when meats that have been preserved with nitrates and nitrites are heated, as they very often are when you're cooking them, uh, some of the amino acids found in the meat will react with the nitrites and they form nitrosamines, and those are known carcinogens. In fact, the World Health Organization, uh, IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, recognizes those as, as uh, cancer-causing substances. There are greater concern in, in uh, meats than in vegetables. Nitrates also occur naturally in vegetables. Uh, many, many vegetables, uh, green vegetables are high in nitrates, but they are less likely to form nitrosamines because they don't have the high quantity of amino acids uh, as meat does. Now, what is going on with ranitidine? It isn't totally clear yet. 
uh, I have looked at the synthesis of this uh, molecule, and uh, dimethylamine is one of the reagents that is used. So it is certainly conceivable that uh, a contaminant uh, called nitrosodimethylamine forms, maybe with reaction uh, nitrogen oxide from the air. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how that happens, but it's conceivable uh, to me that uh, this contaminant would, would form. How dangerous it is? Well, the amounts that have been reported are very, very small, and I think smaller than substances that are very similar to it that have been found in, in food. So at this point, it's hard to know just how big a risk is. Uh, these compounds do not bioaccumulate, and you'd have to be exposed to them over, you know, continuously, continuous intake over a long period of time in order to have to worry about cancer. But uh, I guess as a safety feature, they have removed these from, from the market. Now, there's some concern you know, by patients who have been taking these things, not only because of the worry about nitrosamines, but because the drugs have been effective and uh, have been controlling the problem. But there are other medications that will control the, these digestive issues. Uh, Losec or Prilosec, those are trade names for omeprazole. Uh, omeprazole works in a different way. It's a so-called PPI, a proton pump inhibitor. It's not like ranitidine, which is called an H2 blocker. But the end result is the same. Uh, it reduces uh, excess stomach acid. Omeprazole also has had some issues uh, because any time that reduce uh, stomach acid, there are some concerns that that in itself can give rise to, to problems because the level of acidity in the stomach uh, will neutralize some toxins. And if you reduce the uh, acidity, you may be exposed to the, the worrisome effects of uh, uh, some substances in food. There was uh, a drug that many of you may remember uh, that actually was around before it was replaced by uh, ranitidine, and that was cimetidine. Trade name was Tagamet. And uh, that also was an H2 blocker. In fact, it was the first H2 blocker. It was very, very successful. But uh, it had some side effects, and it turned out that ranitidine was uh, a successor to Tagamet and was thought to be better. But now we have this uh, the story of the contaminant, and we'll see how this unravels, whether they can uh, narrow down where the nitros, uh, nitrosodimethylamine is, is coming from. But uh, in the meantime, the advice is to speak to a physician about using an alternate uh, drug to ranitidine. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. October, just around the corner, which means that it is time for our annual Lorne Trottier Public Science Symposium, which is one of our premier events at McGill. And uh, many of you have attended. You know that uh, we invite top-notch speakers from around the world to address the Montreal public on issues of, of current interest. This year, the dates are the 22nd and 23rd, which are Tuesday and Wednesday. We normally have this event on Monday and Tuesday, but uh, because the election is on Monday, uh, we have moved it to the 22nd and the 23rd. On the 22nd, we have invited Dr. David Sinclair of Harvard. 
And he is famous for being the first researcher to extensively look into red wine and the compound in there called resveratrol. And that launched him on research into aging. And indeed, that is our topic this year. Longing for longevity is what the symposium is all about. And uh, it is of interest uh, to everyone because no matter who you are, you are aging. And the first night, on the Tuesday night, on the 22nd, David Sinclair will speak, along with Kelly Dobos, who's an expert in cosmetics, and we'll see whether or not all of those ads about removing wrinkles and, and uh, uh, lifting up your sagging skin with cosmetic products, are they uh, of any use? And then on the Wednesday night, we have Dr. Ruth Westheimer, who is a legend. She's the first person to have a radio show devoted to sex. And uh, she herself has a very interesting history. She's a, a Holocaust survivor and um, has uh, all kinds of fascinating experiences to tell about being on the radio, uh, talking about sex for seniors. And her topic is going to be is there sex after 50? And uh, promises to be very interesting. We are going to have, I think, a huge crowd on both these evenings, so it uh, would behoove you to come early. It starts at 7 o'clock. It's at the Centre Montreal, which is on Sherbrooke Street, the same place where we've all had it before, right on the corner of Mansfield. And um, uh, I, I think it would be a good idea to come well before 7 o'clock if you want to get a, a good seat. So Tuesday, Dr. David Sinclair of Harvard talking on aging and some of the solutions that are just around the corner to slow down that process. Kelly Dobos is going to discuss cosmetics and what they can do for an aging skin. And on Wednesday night, uh, Dr. Ruth Westheimer is going to talk about uh, sex after the age of 50. But uh, you don't have to be uh, over 50. She's going to have stuff to say about sex for young people as well. So everyone, of course, is invited. It is totally free and uh, uh, good time is had by all. There will be question and answer sessions after the, uh, after the event. Uh, I was talking about ranitidine and the contamination with uh, nitrosodimethylamine. Well, we had another story about this just last year here in Canada, emerging from Queen's University, where a graduate student uh, poisoned another researcher by putting N-nitrosodimethylamine into the food. And the, uh, we don't know exactly what happened, why this was. We do know that this went to court and the, the, uh, uh, it was proven that this had been put into, into the food. The, uh, the victim detected a strange taste in, in the food and uh, it was tested and was found to contain N-nitrosodimethylamine. Uh, there was some vomiting involved because this was a very high dose. But whether or not this has a long-term effect, uh, we will not know. Uh, whether or not it has triggered cancer. I think the chance of that having happened is, is very low uh, because I think it, it needs uh, extensive exposure over a period of time for that to happen, but nobody really knows. But uh, you know, now because of the ranitidine, I, I think this story is, uh, is going to uh, re-emerge. There are uh, 
all kinds of risks in life, you know, as, as, as I keep saying, and it's always, you know, a, a question, often a difficult question, weighing one against the other, you know, whether or not uh, the benefits of taking a certain drug outweigh the detrimental effects and of any kind of, uh, of side effect. And uh, it's often very difficult to, to know uh, just how to interpret it. There are... Uh, are all kinds of interesting stories, of course, that that uh, come up when you're dealing with with chemistry, and I like dealing with chemistry and its historical aspect as well. And the Victorian era, which was basically the second half of the 19th century, was one of the most colorful in history. Literally, it was marked by the introduction of a host of synthetic dyes that, to a large extent, replaced the natural dyes that were derived from plants. And uh, I mean, I've talked about this many times before about uh, mauve uh, accident discovered by uh, Perkin, but uh, there were others. Heinrich Caro was a dye chemist in Germany working with natural colorants when he was sent by his company to England to learn about synthetic dye production. Instead of returning, he found employment with a Manchester chemical company but was eventually lured back to Germany becoming the first head of research at BASF which is a, the huge German chemical company. And it was here that he managed to synthesize methylene blue, a novel dye for cotton. The new synthetic dyes found a use beyond coloring fabrics. Medical researchers discovered that they were also capable of selectively staining different kinds of cells and microbes for easy visualization under a microscope. In 1887, Polish pathologist Czesław Czeczynski found that methylene blue stained the malaria-causing parasites. Uh, subsequently, German physician and scientist Paul Ehrlich noted that methylene blue would not only stain the parasite, it was capable of killing it. By 1891, Ehrlich was using the dye to treat victims of malaria, making methylene blue the first ever synthetic drug used in medicine. This was a big advance, given that quinine, the classic anti-malarial, had to be isolated from the South American cinchona tree, while methylene blue could be produced on a large scale. But methylene blue wasn't quite as effective as quinine, a problem tackled by Ehrlich student Wilhelm Roll, working at Bayer. And Roll did what chemists normally do when trying to improve a drug, namely slightly alter its molecular structure. This research eventually gave rise to quinacrine, an effective anti-malarial. Then in 1934, Hans Andersag at Bayer modified quinacrine further and synthesized chloroquine, which would eventually become the standard treatment for malaria and is used to this day. Unlike methylene blue or quinacrine, chloroquine didn't color the skin or the eyes blue. Interesting story. And this is, uh, you know, not unusual that someone makes one discovery and someone else pushes that discovery in a different direction. So the original research on dyes, of course, was not aimed at drugs, but it turned out that the chemical reactions that were involved in, in dye production were then put to use in the manufacture of uh, uh, various medications. Well, we are running out of time. Let me just mention once more that our upcoming Trottier Public Symposium, uh, entitled Longing for Longevity, the 22nd and 23rd of October, 7 o'clock at the Centre Montreal on the corner of Sherbrooke and University. It's free. Uh, there are no tickets, so you have to make sure that you get there early, so mark it down in your calendar. And uh, on this Thursday, I'm going to be on the social 
go and discuss my new book, A Grain of Salt. Well, that is it. We have run out of time. And once more, let me wish our Jewish listeners uh, a happy new year. Shana Tova. And we, of course, will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.